0: everybody let's go ahead and make our way to our seats let's go ahead and come together here grab your last second cups of coffee creamer sugar if you like it has been too long since we had some snacks or something for sunday school i'll have to work on that I'll have to work on that this week. We did we did have snacks following the worship service last week for the business meeting, but I don't know, maybe it awakened a desire for more food, I don't know, we'll see. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 59, and uh, Mr. Fletcher, would you mind shutting that back left door, uh, please? That would be wonderful. Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, we're going to continue our Sunday school series of Isaiah 40 through 66, and it... Um, uh, we are just trying to take it a chapter at a time. This is one of those chapters that you could dive into and spend a long time in, as you'll see. Um, But for the sake of making our way uh, through the the second, uh, or at least the third part of Isaiah, um, because remember, Isaiah divides into unequal thirds. Uh, You've got Isaiah 1 through... Uh, 35, and then you've got 36 through 39, and then 40 to 66. And those are three distinct parts. So maybe I shouldn't say it divides into thirds. There's three distinct sections of unequal length. And we've been working our way through the third of these sections. So you know, 40 through 66 is an, un- an unbroken poem. Okay? It's an unbroken poem. And as we've said before, Isaiah... 40-66, from a literary standpoint, is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. There is no higher literature. There is no better literature. From a revelation standpoint, from a, from a literary technique standpoint, there's so much about this that is um, really breathtaking. And Isaiah 59 is one of those. So let's let's read uh, this whole chapter together. And what I want you to do as we read, I don't want you to read ahead, I want you to think ahead, okay? As we read, think to yourself, what's coming next? In my experience with life, in my experience with God, what is coming next? And I think what is said will surprise you because we're conditioned to think a certain way and then God surprises us, okay? So as we read, think ahead rather than read ahead. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, an adder is a poisonous, a highly poisonous, venomous snake. They hatch... Snake eggs, basically. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one knows who treads. Uh, no one who treads on them knows peace. Let's stop right there. For what? What person are all of these verbs in so far? you grammar people what person are all of these verbs in third person plural good okay what is a third person plural everybody they them okay. now I want you to notice read verse 9 to yourselves what's the what's the person of those verbs? First person. It switches. It's been they, 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 they. And for the next seven verses, it's gonna be we, 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 we. Okay? Now, we'll get there in a second. Okay? It's gonna change again. And that's really significant. Okay? Now let's check this change. Therefore. Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation but it is far from us for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. Now, that's all us, first-person plural. Now, it's about to shift again. The person is about to shift again. Let's read that shift and note it. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. Let's stop there. Think ahead. Don't say anything out loud. What comes next? Hear these words again. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. There was no justice. It displeased him. The Lord's about to put on armor. What comes next? What comes next? Okay, let's keep reading. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. Is that different? A different word than you thought would come. See, and his righteousness upheld him. He's about to put on armor. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. A Redeemer. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, declares the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring. Or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Is that what you expected? God donning his armor to save, to redeem, and to make a covenant, an everlasting covenant with people, even after observing everything that we had just read. That's our structure. Let me highlight a few of these things, and then we'll kind of hone in on the third section that we read. We see here in verses 1 through 8, third person plural, remember? And this is part of Isaiah's sermon. Do you remember the sermon that Isaiah was supposed to preach? The the sermon was supposed to be passionate. It was supposed to be filled with energy. He says in 58.1, Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Cry out, convince the people of their sins. And the first part of this condemnation is Isaiah is putting the people's words back up to their ears. He's putting a mirror up in front of them. And the people have been saying, God doesn't hear us. God's arm has been cut short. God can't save us. And if God can save us, he's disinterested. He doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to hear. He's far from us. And Isaiah quotes what people are saying about God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. He calls him out. I've heard what you said, that God's arm is short, or that the Lord's ear is dull. Let me tell you what the real problem is. He says, it has nothing to do with God, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This word separation uh, is a a word from all the way back in Genesis 1. When God separated the water from the land, he separated the night from the day. He put this sort of... um, forever marker between two things, and God says, your sin has put a wall up between you and God, put a wall up. He says, verse 3, you, you want to know why God isn't listening to your prayers? You're raising your hands in prayer, and your hands are covered in blood. Do you know why God isn't listening to? To your prayers? Because the same mouth that utters these prayers immediately leaves those prayers and those special fast days that we talked about, and they go and utter lies. In fact, you're so full of lies that no one enters a lawsuit justly, verse 4. Then In the nation, you guys are suing each other. You're trying to take things to law. You're making things up. You're providing false witnesses. Nobody's even arguing from righteousness anymore. You're trying to game the system with how you define words. And you don't really believe what you're saying. You're just trying to take advantage of this situation. Now, if anything, I think we can see our culture in this passage. It's not that... This is this is pan-cultural. This is what happens when sin in the human heart takes hold and is unrepentant. What God is saying here, what Isaiah is accusing them of, he says, you say that God can't save, you say that God God isn't hearing, he can save, he's not hearing, the fault isn't with him, the fault is with you. And it's this abject, utter hypocrisy, unconfessed sin. You go and you offer your children in the valleys of Molech, you take your neighbor to court, and you lie through your teeth. And then you have the audacity to lift those hands and move those lips toward God, and then accuse God of not listening or caring. This is hypocrisy. This is sinning with a high hand. Isaiah says this in verse 4. This is uh, verse 5, rather. And this is part of what makes this section so beautiful. They hatch Adder's eggs, and they weave a spider's web. Okay? The, he's going to go on and pursue this, this metaphor. Now, usually in the wild, when you see an egg, that's a good thing. It's a sign of life. You can take the egg if you want, and you can eat it and get nutrition from it. I usually eat a few eggs every morning. Who of us hasn't seen... Now, I will admit... They creep me out a little bit. Um, they don't seem to bother my wife any. She's she's very, she, she's fine with it. But, but it's in the morning, and the dew is out, and on a 90 degree angle of a post or something, you see a beautiful spider web. It is huge. And you realize that little spider has been at work all night long. Now, I'm good with it as long as I don't see the spider, okay? <laughs> um, Or the worst is when you're running on like a trail in the morning and you run right through a spider web. And I'm sure it was beautiful until my nose hit it. Well, again, something that's beautiful, but you just pluck one little corner off and it collapses. To other little animals, to other little creatures, that web represents and so, what Isaiah is saying here is that you people who are sinning this way, you make big promises. And it looks so good. It looks like there's life. But in the end, it is death. In the end, it is nakedness. Try, go ahead. Try to clothe yourself, Isaiah says, with spider's webs. You won't get very far. When you have this batter's egg, you can crush it. All you've done is awakened a, a baby viper that's just as capable of killing you as an adult. Even the eggs themselves were poisonous to eat. So that, that's, that is this society. That is this culture that Isaiah is talking to. Beautiful on the outside, so full of promise. No substance. Death and That's What Isaiah saying? Now we could go on and pursue that for a while, as Isaiah does. But then we come to verse nine, and something changes. What was it? Remind, remind somebody. Remind me what changes here? Change in not verb tense. Change in verb person. Change in verb person. From from what to what? as we read through that, did you see any substantive change in what was being said? They're liars, all of them. They are adder's eggs. They conceive mischief. We come down here. It says, our transgressions have multiplied before you. Justice has turned its back. Truth has stumbled. Okay. Is there a difference in The assessment. Not really. But there is a difference in who is saying it. There's a difference in who's saying it. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because once it goes from they, them, you, to I, we, and us, then God says, I will clothe myself to fight for your salvation. When This is what we call confession. This is confession. The Lord is later in this passage going to call it repentance. The New Testament helps us sort of split out those terms a little bit. Confession is always part of repentance. But confession is essentially agreeing with God's assessment. I am that broken. I am that awful. I'm the spider's web. I have lifted my hands covered in blood. I have, I have prayed to God, turned around and lied, and then accused God of not listening to me. I have done that our we are broken okay that's confession and repentance is saying i don't want that anymore i've tasted that and that's death what i want is the lord's way now this marks a major transition in the book believe it or not this transition from they to we look let's go back with me in the book of Isaiah. Go back to chapter 6. Go back to chapter 6. Go down to verse 8. Read this with me. It's very important. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said, I, here am I, send me. And he said, okay, I'll send you. Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and, they're blind, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their e- eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn. What what God tells Isaiah is, I'm going to send you to preach to this people. And and actually, your preaching is going to harden these people. They're going to hear what you have to say, and they're going to disagree with you. They're not going to like what you have to say. But, in Isaiah 59, so, so all the way up to here, that's what it's been. That's what it's been, the hardening of this people. And what God is trying to show is, you are blind, you cannot see. And even my own message has hardened you. But, but, there's a change coming. And when that change takes place, when it goes from hearing the condemnation of the Lord to accepting and confessing, then suddenly the Lord is postured differently. Look at chapter sixty. Look at the very next chapter. Okay. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness. But the Lord will arise upon you. When we come down to verse six, go to chapter sixty-one. The Spirit of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We're told later on that these are people who are blind and the Lord is going to give them sight. That that's a that's a that's a sign that he's forgiving them. And what was the change? The change went from even my words are going to harden you, to now my glory is going to shine on you and you're going to have light and salvation. And the change was this acceptance that that's me, I'm broken. There's no truth in me. I have been a hypocrite. I have been a liar. And when that happens, God rushes and God begins to save and God begins to help. Therefore, verse 9, let's go back to verse 9. Does everybody see that pattern? You see that pattern? Therefore, justice is far from us. The righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, we're in darkness. We can, we can keep going with that, but we need to move forward. Look at Let's go to verse 15, about halfway. This is a spot where the, the verse break maybe wasn't the best. Um, For those of you who don't know, um, the verse references were put in many centuries after these books were written. Um, My son was asking me the other day, he's like, why didn't they just leave it alone? And I said, I mean, what would you have rather me done? Said, hey, turn in Isaiah to the the 897th paragraph, about halfway down. Um, He said, oh yeah, I see your point. (laughs) So, super helpful. Uh, helps us find things quickly, helps us divide up the Bible. Um, We're happy to have them, but they're not inspired, okay? Um, They're just little helpful tools. And in this case, the break wasn't great, but that's okay. They had a lot of them, and they got most of them right. So we'll say 15, second half of 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. Now, again, remember when I asked you to think ahead Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Okay, go back to Genesis chapter 6. I think Isaiah is deliberately playing on this section in Genesis 6. Let's go to verse 5 of Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Come to a, let's go back to Isaiah 59. We come to a passage like this, and we see the Lord saw it, and it displeased Him, and there was no justice. And our immediate thought is God. And, and then in the very and then in this scene, we see God putting on the putting on military armor. And we say to ourselves, He must be coming with the sword. He must be coming to drop the hammer. But remember, something has changed. The people now are agreeing with God's accusations. They're agreeing with God's assessment. They've, their heart is to turn away from those things. And so now God arms himself, God girds himself for something different. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal does anybody notice anything that this warrior is lacking? A sword, a weapon. (laughs) He doesn't have a weapon. Now, that's important. It shows that he's girding himself for something, but he's not... His intention, his ultimate... His his first intention is not to destroy it. He's coming without a sword in his hand. Now, we learn later in the book of Revelation that this person who's robed himself in righteousness and the helmet of salvation doesn't need a sword. The word out of his mouth serves as the weapon that he uses to judge mankind. He doesn't need a sword. He just opens his mouth and it happens. But the picture is of a peaceful warrior Kind of like nowadays, if you go to A.O. Schwartz in New York City, they have a whole section of G.I. Joe's, G.I. Joe army men. They've got trucks and binoculars and radios. Do you know what G.I. Joe members in A.O. Schwartz in New York City don't have? They don't have guns or hand grenades or tanks. These are just peaceful dudes, okay? Um, G.I. Joe. it's, It's kind of a silly thing, isn't it? Like, then why are they dressed up like that if they're not going to fight? And that's the contrast the Lord is intending to show us. This is a warrior who's coming to us without a sword in his hand. He's coming to us intending peace. Now, here's the thing that I want you to see from this. Um, This is exclusively of the initiative of God. Listen to how Isaiah says it. Then his own arm brought him salvation. Do you remember reading in the Psalter, not unto us, Lord, not unto us but to your great glory. But to your great glory. Paul, at the end of a section of salvation in both Romans and Ephesians, ends with this doxology of praise. All all praise and glory to God. God saves for our sake, yes. But the primary beneficiary of salvation from God is God. God is glorified for both his wrath and his mercy. He's glorified for both his vengeance and his salvation. And God will be glorified for both. He says here that according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. But there's something else going on at the same time. Verse 19, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. Where does the sun rise? East. That's right. When he comes with this salvation, it will come like a rushing stream. The Hebrew is a, is a little bit more picturesque, and we can understand it from the book of Genesis. It's waters that have been held back and suddenly the thing holding them back is taken away, and the water just rushes. Can you, think of a, can you think of a place in the New Testament where this may have occurred? Let me give you a hint. Keep reading past that. It says, so this is my covenant. What, what is it that, that the Lord is saying here will rush upon us? What? Yes, but there's something more specific than that. That's right. This rushing of the Spirit at Pentecost. The disciples are in this upper room praying, and suddenly there's this great rush of wind in Acts chapter two, and and everything changes. The Spirit now is no longer a for like a not a force, but a He's no longer influencing us from the outside, but the Spirit is now residing within. And He says right here, this is my covenant. I'll put my law in your mouth. I'll put my word in your mouth, and it shall not depart out of your mouth. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so God says, from the west to the east, I'm going to rush upon you for salvation. And it's God's determination in the glorification of God. Now, I want to make one more Bible connection for us here so that we can see how important this a passage of Scripture like this is for all of the rest of Scripture. Let's go back up to verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breast, breastplate, and the helmet of salvation as his head, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, this is clearly the inspiration of, I'm going to give two Bible connections. This is clearly clearly the inspiration of what passage in the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 6, and what is that, Pastor Don? Yes, the armor of the Lord. The armor of the Lord. Now, We can can think of this armor of the Lord as in like, is this armor that the Lord gives out? Yes, but it's armor that the Lord is already wearing. It's his armor, and he distributes it to us and allows us to be clothed just like he is. That's one connection. Here's another connection. When Jesus was nearing the end of his life, His earthly life, anyway. It says that he set his face like a flint, hard rock. He set his face like a flint. He was in Jericho, and he went up to Jerusalem. It's an uphill walk. And the gospel writers describe it as Jesus, with his face like a flint, Charging up the hill so fast that people had a hard time keeping up. If you ever watch, for example, a, a race, whether it be a running race, or a biking, or swimming race, you can tell when the pace has quickened. Because at first it's a mass of athletes; you know, they're just kind of like a beehive, and running. But when when one person decides, "I'm out of here." No more of this easy stuff. And they take off. Everybody falls in single file. And the weaker athletes just drop off the back as the pace continues to push. And this is Jesus. His face is set like a flint, and he is charging up the hill, and it is single file behind him. Because he's not waiting for anybody. It is time to go and do the work of the holy warrior and to secure our salvation by suffering a violent end. Jesus charged up the hill, clothed in his armor, to deliver us from our sins. And he did it for the glory of God. He did it for the glory of his own name. And that's always our appropriate response. But let's remind ourselves... Before we close what is the change that goes What what's the change that takes place here in this passage what's the change that, that gets us moving toward this holy warrior and sinner, sinner's friend as the song goes yes sir the faith is part of it Yes, sir. Yep. Faith is part of it for sure. What's the change? That that's it. That's a change, but it's a consequence of the first change we talked about. They fear the name of the Lord. No? Yes, Matthew. Right. It's that it's that person change, remember? It goes from they to us. From them to we. You to I. Okay. Nobody, I've said this many times before, nobody has ever perished bowing at the feet of Jesus. When we confess our sins and agree with God that we are broken and we need his salvation, God's demeanor and attitude changes instantly and forevermore for you. He goes from your judge and accuser to your savior and your friend and your father Your benefactor forevermore. And it happens like that. So let's remember which side of that change we are on. Because sometimes we forget that God has totally dispositionally changed toward us. When we sin and we mess up. We think all is lost. See, the devil, before you come to Christ, is always trying to keep you from knowing something. And from the moment you're saved, he's always trying to get you to forget it. (laughs) And that is, God saves those who ask for it. When we agree with God that we're broken and we need his help, and we cry out to him offering nothing in our hands, he turns and saves and helps. And whatever trial you have coming into your life is no longer a consequence of sin. And that's something we always need to remember. All right, isn't Isaiah 59 rich? Couldn't we have spent a long time there? Maybe one day. All right, Father, thank you for uh, this wonderful passage. As we move forward in the book of Isaiah, I pray that you would continue to bless us richly. But We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.